Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only Internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Kiri Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. So today's topic is going to be about how to stop overeating, how to stop stress eating, even how to stop binge eating and stick to any diet. I'm so very excited about today's show because my special guest is Dr. Glenn Livingston. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Livingston is a psychologist who was disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer the overweight and or food obsessed patient. He spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. Dr. Livingston, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Well, thank you so much for having me, and please call me Glenn. Okay, well, Glenn, um, I always like to start just by hearing my my uh, my interviewee's story. So can you tell us a little bit about your own personal journey out of obesity and what you called the food prison? I sure can. I sure can. So um, I guess I'll start by telling you that I'm not just a psychologist, but I come from a family of psychologists. They're my mom and my dad and my aunts and my uncles and my cousins. And at last count, there were 20 of us. Wow. And yeah, so you you don't (laughs) want to go to a family reunion. It's pretty hairy. Um, and, And that's important because it really shaped my early views on how to treat my own eating disorder or how to work with patients about eating disorders. And in in some ways, I think that it interfered with, certainly with me getting better. Um, So in my adolescence, I was what you would call exercise bulimic, which, which means that I couldn't put my finger down my throat. But I figured out that as a six foot four guy, if I exercised a lot, then I could eat more or less whatever I wanted to. And I really, really like to eat. So I, I often wonder how I survived my adolescence because I don't really remember eating a single vegetable. Um, but but it didn't really have an impact on me when I was young and unencumbered with no real responsibilities. But as I got older, and particularly when I got into graduate school and I was married and I was seeing patients and I had all this studying to do, Um, I couldn't make the time to exercise all the food off, and I found that it was almost impossible to reduce the food intake. I I developed this pattern, and it was almost like there was something taking me over that said that I had to 
eat the level of food that I was I was eating. It was part of my personality. It was really ingrained. And I, being a psychologist, went the traditional psychological route for help. So as you can imagine with my family, I knew a lot of people in New York City who were among the best psychologists and psychiatrists and counselors. And, and I talked to a lot of them. Um, I eventually went to Overeaters Anonymous and I, I got some help. I, I learned some things that were helpful. I really came to soulfully connect you know, what was triggering the binges or what was initiating the binges, um, you know, with, for example, I know that my mom was married to an army captain during the Vietnam era when I was very little. And so she was very nervous that he was going to be taken overseas. And there was a lot going on in her life. And so she used to give me chocolate instead of a hug when she was really busy. And so, I mean, that's a really kind of direct connection. And I was really intrigued with the idea that, well, okay, so I go to chocolate when I feel lonely or I need to be held. or And I started to think, well, if I'm working with a patient and they're having trouble with chocolate, then I have to figure out where is the loneliness in their life and how do we solve that. But an interesting thing happened. It's like there was this little voice inside of me that said, you know, Glenn, you're right. You, you do go to chocolate when you feel lonely and we're going to just have to keep eating chocolate until we can fill up all that loneliness inside of us. And so it, it didn't really work. Like it was, it was true. It was a valuable insight. It was, you know, interesting to talk about with people, but it's kind of like having an x-ray into a broken bone. It wasn't, it was the diagnosis. It wasn't the treatment. And um, I, I simultaneously, because I don't have kids and I never commuted. I've always worked from home. And in addition to my clinical practice, I was doing all of this consulting for large companies, a lot of them in the food industry. And I, I learned how to do research. And so I you know, had some money, not a lot of money, but some money to put into trying to research the problem. And I developed this online study and I eventually put 40,000 people through it, um, which quantified those relationships. We looked at, you know, what particular foods that people go to when they had which particular issues. And we we did find relationships, and I had a lot of press about it. Um, you know, for example, the, um, the chocolate and loneliness or chocolate and feeling unloved thing, that seemed to be validated. These weren't very, very strong correlations, but they were there. Um, there was a correlation between people who craved crunchy, salty snacks and people who we're having a lot of stress at work. So that there were there were things like that that were very interesting and newsworthy but not practically solution oriented. And as I was going through this and you know finding that I was just getting a tiny bit of help here and there but really I felt like the food obsession was taking over my life and it was it was difficult for me to concentrate on my patients while I was working with them because I was wondering well, when's the next time I can get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty, you know, most of it into it? Um, I happened across an alternative to the addiction treatment model, um, which was was fairly common sense and relatively crude. It basically said to think of your inner enemy, which is the lizard brain, which is the, um, you know, kind of the brain stem which looks at things in a very primitive way when you know 
early in the evolutionary course of um of our of our planet the creatures would see things and they'd have to decide do i kill it do i meet with it or do i eat it and there was no love there were no herds there was no connecting with other animals it was really a very primitive you know a, a neurologist or probably probably even you dr carey could um like it's just do this. it's just pure survival it's just pure survival yeah and and what this guy said was that in the addictions the survival drive has been co-opted the survival drive doesn't care about your goals and aspirations and love and joy and your best laid plans and long-term goals these the um the survival drive only cares about survival and and he said that what you need to do like everybody's running around trying to nurture their inner wounded child to to solve the addiction but that that actually makes it worse in many ways because at the moment of impulse the survival drive is activated and it's been co-opted and attached to some industrial you know he's really talking mostly about alcohol and drugs and some of the black and white addictions and he suggests that that you separate from it and that you learn to recognize when it was talking and that you could develop almost like develop a sense of disgust with it his, his name was jack trimpey and if people want to read more he's at rational recovery um and, and he's very protective of his trademark so i don't say a lot an awful lot more about him but i, I was intrigued by that because it, it just made sense to me like everything i was doing was from this psychological paradigm of nurturance and that that i had this inner wounded child and i wasn't loved enough and i had to fill up all that love and so there were a lot of modifications I had to make to his, you know, his ideas, um, because you know you can quit drinking alcohol, you can quit smoking, but you have to take the lion out of the cage and walk it around the block a few times a day when it comes to food. And so I had to work really hard on how you draw that line in the sand, you know, um, what what it really meant to quit binging, and I found that that was really unique for each individual person. But for example, I found that I could make a rule that said, I will never have chocolate again, or I will only ever have chocolate again on Saturdays. And if I did that, then any little voice in my head that suggested I have chocolate during the week, I could immediately recognize as this, this lizard brain. And I, I have everybody come up with their own name for the lizard brain. I call mine my inner pig. Some people don't like that, and they call it their B-I-T-C-H, or they call it their inner slacker, or... I tend to work with a lot of women, and I, I discovered that just because I called it a pig doesn't mean that that's what works for everyone. But but um, I, I call it I call it my inner pig, and I call the things that it says to try to get me to cross those lines pig squeal. And when my pig squeals, I just remember that it's squealing for pig slop, and I don't eat pig slop, and I and I don't listen to farm animals. And it sounds like an extraordinarily crude and unsophisticated way for you know a psychologist who's seen well over a thousand clients and you know done tens of million dollars of consulting um to to come up with but in the end that's really what worked for me it was something so primitive and um i found that once i kind of got that idea into my head i couldn't stop thinking about it and it wasn't perfect and i kind of had to work on it over time and then I worked with some clients about it and you know I kept the journal all this time and then I eventually put that journal into a book and you know now people are people are walking around saying my pig says this and my pig says that 
<laughs> and it's helping them. And um, that's really my story. I, I, I lost about 60 pounds and my triglycerides came way down and I I didn't wind up killing myself with food, which is what I thought I was going to do. So that's that's really how, how it came together. Okay, so Dr. Glenn, at this point in time, why do you think our culture has, or people in our culture have such difficulty with overeating and stress eating and even binge eating? Is it is it still something with the lizard brain? Is it our lizard brain has gone haywire? Well, y- yes, but that's far from the whole story. The I think it's amazing that anybody in our culture doesn't have an eating disorder, given what's going on. Because here's here's what's happening, and I, I used to do a lot of consulting for big food. Um, the food industry has a tremendous economic incentive to put the most calories in the smallest space and make it look as enticing as it, and as attractive as possible. That's that's really what they get paid to do, and. There, there just aren't enough regulations and oversight to prevent them from making that progressively more unhealthy for us. And an example of this, I heard a study that suggested there's somewhere between 5,000 and 7,000 commercials that we're all exposed to each year. I think they were studying children in particular, and not one of them is about fruit and vegetables, right? Right, right. Um, and so th- there are billions and billions of dollars that go into advertising, and there's billions of billions of dollars that go into food science, which is the science of putting the most calories in the smallest space and making it taste as attractive as possible, not necessarily making it as healthy as possible, but making it um, as attractive and enticing as possible. So there's that on the one hand. Then on the other hand, there's this overwhelming force in the addiction treatment industry, which, and you know, they do some good for some people, but, but basically the science behind it um, isn't really that strong. The science behind the general addiction treatment industry is that um, you know you're just about as likely to become abstinent from your addiction in treatment as out of treatment. Um, but but they say that you can't quit. They t- they tell you that like it's almost heresy for me to say I will never have chocolate again because they'll say well you can't really know what you're going to do and just take it one day at a time and let's use progress and not perfection and um you know th- this is really an alternative this is uh this, this is really a way of looking at it and saying you know there are a lot of things that i commit to that are related to very strong impulses um you know when i got married i didn't say you know i'm about 80 percent certain that i can be faithful forever but there sure are a lot of attractive people out there and i i don't want to make a liar out of myself so why don't we just take it one day at a time so people don't do that. They, the essence of a commitment is a plan for perfection. And so th- this is a methodology that really focuses on that plan for, for, for perfection. You might think about how an athlete will visualize themselves crossing the finish line and they'll purge all of the doubt and, res- the, um, doubt and uncertainty from their head. Um, and then if they don't win or they don't cross the finish line, they don't really work hard to beat themselves up and demoralize themselves they just analyze what went wrong and they get back up again and visualize the finish line again but they they don't say maybe i'm going to make it and maybe i won't because that leaves too much room open for the lizard brain to take over at the first moment of weakness um and so i i think that um 
I think that we have a culture of treating addiction with uncertainty and um, and, and almost a defeatist attitude about it. And I think that when you combine that with the advertising industry that says they bet you can't have just one and billions of dollars put into making hyperpalatable foods with more sugar, fat, and salt every day in bigger sizes and portion sizes, it's really a wonder that anybody manages to eat well at all. That's that's what I think. Okay, so <clears throat> here is my next question for you. Is it really possible to never binge again or to even think like a thin person? Um, w- winners get up when they fall down. The, the biggest difference between winners and losers are that losers get so demoralized they don't get up again. Winners get up every time. and And so... I think that it is possible to say I'm never going to binge again. And I think that thin people, more permanently thin people, have that, have that philosophy. And I like to train people to let go of some of the you know, culturally induced uncertainty and, well, I'm just going to do the best I can and I can only follow, follow guidelines, I can't make rules. I say, no, let's... let's Let's make crystal clear rules so that we can hear that inner enemy. And if you happen to make a mistake, then okay, you'll forgive yourself and get up and do it again. But let's sit out with the attitude that we're not going to make those mistakes and we're going to cross the finish line and we can visualize ourselves victorious. I like that because, uh, well, you've, you've seen it. I've seen it in, in the world of um, entrepreneurialism that the, usually the most successful people, the most successful entrepreneurs have had the biggest failures too. But they still, they get up and they learn from their mistake and they just keep pushing. I certainly have. I've certainly had my share of failures. You don't talk about it much though. <laughs> you, you tend to hear the success stories and you think that, you know, people just climb the mountain on the first try. But, but um, yeah, I think that's very true. Yeah, and that a lot of people who are struggling with overeating and stress eating and binging they you know I get the sense that they feel like failures deep inside that they should be able to control this and so what you're saying is just to start thinking like well I I'm saying that those thoughts the the thoughts which beats you down after you make a mistake that's actually coming that's actually driven by that lizard brain because if that lizard brain can beat you down and tell you you know you're really pathetic you're never going to be able to do this then that lizard brain gets to go after its slop instead right that that's how it's going to get you out of the way and let it let it binge and so you have to understand that those thoughts are part of the binge mentality in and of itself and it's it's uh, Carol Munter taught me that it's almost impossible to binge if you refuse to yell at yourself. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so for our listeners out there, how do they create a food plan for themselves? Well, Dr. Carey, I, I think it's really important that people step back and say, you know, most people who have trouble with food, they've done a lot of reading, they've tried all these diets, they've had periods in their life where they they eat well and they really knew they were eating well and they just wish that they could stick to that. I, I think it's really important that people create a food plan that they can own. 
So rather than allowing their inner pig to say, well, gee, the diet doctor's plan, it was good, but it wasn't quite perfect. We'll have to try someone else's. Step back and say, no, this is time for me <clears throat> to create what I really believe is going to work and take 100% responsibility for it. So that's the first part of it is, is be willing to own your creation. Step, don't, don't let the pig create a dependency on some external diet doctor. Not even me. Um, then you can create the plan any way you want to as long as the rules are crystal clear. But I, I like to give people the following four buckets to consider. Um, things that you'll never do again. Things that you'll always do. Things that you'll only do under certain conditions. And things that you can do in an unrestricted way. So maybe I'll never have chocolate again. Um, or maybe I want to make it conditional and I, I'll only eat pretzels at Major League Baseball games or on Christmas or Thanksgiving or something like that. That would be a conditional. Um, or I always drink six ounces of six glasses of water every day. Or I always take my vitamins in the morning. Or I always have four servings of fruit and vegetables. Or I always ask myself if I'm hungry before I sit down to eat. Or I always plan out the next day's food before I go to bed. Um, those are always types of rules. And you'll notice that some of these rules can be behavioral as well as specifically pertaining to food. And then there are, um, there are unrestricteds. And usually these are things like I can drink as much water as I want to and I can have as many you know, unsauced vegetables as I like. And um, it, It's important to think through things that you can have on, with no conditions on them whatsoever so that your pig won't tell you that you're restricting your freedom too much. And, and then as you, as you make your plan... And I suggest people start with one rule and then get the hang of how this all works and then um, add more rules as, as you go along. But when you have a complete plan, it's really important to evaluate it and say, well, does this allow me to have a nutritionally complete, tasty, and satisfying diet? Um, because if it doesn't, it becomes very difficult for, for people to stick with that. And sometimes that means consulting with a nutritionist or going back and reading a couple of other books. Um, but... It's important to evaluate it at the end. And then it's important to think of yourself almost like a city traffic planner. And if you are responsible for deciding how many traffic lights and stop signs and yield signs went throughout the city, and you were responsible for deciding where you were going to place them, you would be trying to balance the free flow of traffic with protecting the dangerous intersections. And if you if you put a stoplight at an intersection which really wasn't dangerous and didn't require it, you'd be unnecessarily restricting the free flow of traffic through that city. Um, on the other hand, if you neglected to put a stoplight someplace where there'd been a lot of car crashes, then you'd be you know, kind of at fault of not protecting the, the populace. And, and so I like people to think of that analogy as they're going through because you're really trying to maximize your freedom while protecting your health goals. This is not about creating a, you know, a Nazi-like disciplined plan that's going to leave you feeling deprived and restricted. This, this should actually make you feel excited and hopeful when you're done because you realize that 
you've identified all the trouble spots, you've created those stop signs and stoplights and yield signs so that now people can move now people can move around the town so to speak or you can freely move around your food environment with much less fear and and that's really the essence of freedom Dr. Glenn, we're starting to run low on time here, and we've talked about a lot already in this interview, but is there anything that you think uh, we haven't talked about that our listeners should learn? Well, what I like people to do is step back and think about one food or behavior that really triggers them. Most people have one or two things they know are really trouble for them, and um, at the end of the interview, I'll tell you where you can get some free food plan templates and kind of get started with all this. Um, but I'd like them to think about, well, what if you just made one rule? Um, I mean, for me, it was I'll never eat chocolate again. That was my first rule because that was my biggest trouble food. And once I said that, I could begin to hear the pig. Um, and and make that rule. Decide what you're going to call your inner enemy. Decide what you're going to call its food versus your food. And just start to say when you feel the cravings, oh, that's that's my pig having the craving. That's my slacker having the cravings. That's not me. And as, as crazy as it sounds, as simple as it sounds, it changes your psychology. It's a little algorithm that gets stuck in your head. And it it starts to give you that jolt, a, a, um, a little bit of a feeling of disgust at the moment of impulse that give you, gives you those extra microseconds so you can jump back up into your right mind and you know, and make a better choice. So that, that's what I like people to start with. I like them to know that it doesn't have to be a lot more complicated than that. I know that people who have, I'm, I'm very much in favor of people pursuing psychology. I think the reason I have such a soulful life is I've had so much psychological influence in my life. But stopping the behavior doesn't have to require that you understand all the psychology behind the behavior. It, it really just requires that you clarify your your plan. What does it mean to eat healthy? What does it mean to eat bad? Very, very specifically so that if 10 people followed you around all day, they'd all agree. Clarify that. um, Start to see yourself as um, having to recognize this inner enemy inside of you. And then then try to ignore it. Try, Try to ignore it when you start to hear the impulses. And there's an awful lot more that I can tell you about it, but I know we're short, running short on time, so I'll, I'll let you wrap it up or ask any last questions that you want to. Well, my last question was going to be, Dr. Glenn, how can our listeners find out more about you Okay, and more, and more about this? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so at, at the moment, um, the book is the best-selling book on Amazon for binge eating and overeating. But the, the best place to get it is to go to neverbingingin.com, and I'll tell you why. Um, one is because when you opt in for the free reader bonuses, you'll not only get the latest copy of the book for free, um, it's free on the Kindle and on the Nook. And if you can't get it free in your country, you can just email us and we'll send you a copy. But I will also send you a set of starter food plan templates. You can get a better sense of the kind of rules you might put together. And more importantly, I've recorded a whole bunch of coaching sessions. So you know, Dr. Carey and I today were talking very much in theory about how this works, but there's nothing like hearing what it's like to see someone implement this, you know, the fears that they have, their their 
way that they work through that, how they formulate the rules, and then how it works for them. So I've recorded a whole bunch of those, and those are free too. Um, so go to neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button, and sign up for the reader bonuses, and you'll get all of the above. Fantastic. For the listeners out there that are uh, in the car right now or on their bike, I'll make sure that that link is in the podcast notes so that you can easily find Dr. Glenn. Dr. Glenn, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been an awesome interview. I really enjoyed it, Dr. Carey. Thank you for having me on. All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Glenn Livingston. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next week for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carey is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carey is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carey.